morning. All righty, our scripture today comes from Genesis, chapter 30. Oh, yeah, 30, 25 to 31.3. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away, that I may go to my own, house, my own home in my own country. Give me, wives, give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you, and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I have turned. But now when, I, when, shall, I, when shall I provide for my own household also? <clears throat> he said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later, when you come to look at, looked into my wages with you. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted as stolen. Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plant trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that, our, that was our father's and from what was our father's he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Thank you, Caleb. He didn't know he was going to have to do the scripture reading when he got here this morning, so I appreciate his uh, willingness. This is a fitting passage to begin with a brotherly trick, so that also figured into that. As we've said multiple times yet this morning, it's Palm Sunday. We remember the moment that Jesus rode in Jerusalem on a donkey. The common people acclaimed Jesus as their king, the heir of courageous David. They shouted, Hosanna, like in the song, save us. The religious leaders watched all this unfolding with hostile and suspicious eyes. How could the people think that this man was their king? Some self-proclaimed rabbi from the backwoods 
who eats with sinners and dishonors the Sabbath rules. To them, Jesus was a charlatan, a liar, someone who was misleading the people. Jesus was the heir of David, but as he would later tell the Roman governor, his kingdom is not of this world. It's bigger than the local fight between Israel and Rome. The rule that Jesus was given was the restored authority of the first humans. Be fruitful and multiply, Yahweh the Creator had told them. Rule over the earth. But that kingdom was stolen by rebel spiritual beings intent on chaos and destruction. The Creator's response was to choose and bless a new man and woman, Abraham and Sarah, promising them a family that would swell eventually to a great kingdom, and all the families of earth would find blessing there. But as we've seen, that proceeds neither quickly nor smoothly. Mistakes, lies, and selfishness litter these stories of promise. Genesis chapters 28 through 31 tell of an intense game played between Jacob, Abraham's grandson, and his uncle Laban with their families as the pawns. Laban tricks Jacob into marrying the wrong one of his daughters, gets twice the labor out of him. Then Jacob pulls a fast one on Laban, the focus of our time this morning, causing his flocks to increase while Laban's shrinks without a single sheep actually being stolen. Jacob got Laban's goat. Laban gave away the farm. Trickery and lies run through these stories like termites under a collapsing house. Why do we tell lies? I think often we tell ourselves it's to protect something, it's to protect those we love, or to spare someone the dishonor of the truth. Yeah, honey, that looks great. How many of us have gone over to somebody's house and have been served rubbish, but uh, refused to admit it? And I think sometimes that is somewhat true. We do you know, either fudge the truth or withhold a little bit of the truth in order to spare someone's feelings or to protect somebody. But I think that ultimately most of our lies are selfish. We lie to get what we want, and we lie to keep what we have. I've told many lies in my life and pulled many tricks. In the second grade, our teacher graphed the ages of the class. Most of us were eight, but there was one nine-year-old, Jeff. He got his own colored bar on the graph, and the rest of us all had to be in the same bar, and he got all the praise and adulation of the class. It's not his fault that he was born ahead of us. He did nothing. He just happened to be nine years old at the time they made the graph. He was riding high. But then I decided that I also wanted on that ride. And so I announced, teacher, you know, I just remembered my birthday was last week, and I'm actually also nine years old. For those of you keeping score at home, that's two lies in one sentence. It was like, I don't remember what year or what time of year it was, but my birthday's in June, so we were not in school, and it was not two weeks ago, and I was not nine years old. But oh, how I relished those few minutes of fame, joining Jeff on the smaller bar of the graph. But it all came crashing down when Jeff somehow found proof of my real age. I don't remember what he did or, or how this happened, but he, he may have just said it. Like, he may have just pointed out the fact that my birthday was in June, and the whole, my whole house of cards came crashing down. 
told many lies, played many tricks. Most of those tricks on Caleb, unfortunately, but uh, <clears throat> we told him once that, uh, I don't remember exactly what we said, but I think we said if you yell really loudly, then hornets won't chase you after you smack a nest, and uh, Caleb, Caleb received many stings that day. Anyway, we've all lied. Most of us, I imagine. If you tell me that you haven't, uh, I don't think I believe you. We've all lied. We've all been lied to. We have felt the cold grip of the truth when it's found out, when you're found out. We've also felt that sickening boil of realizing that someone we trusted had lied to us. Our society is so tangled up in lies and deceit and falsehood that it seems impossible that we will ever sort everything back out. How can we prevent getting caught up in our own web. And our sermon summary this morning is this. Jesus tricked the powers of evil into giving away the farm so that we can live in truth and freedom. Jesus tricked the powers of evil into giving away the farm so that we can live in truth and freedom. In our passage, Genesis whatever it was he just read, the passage Caleb read for us, Laban, his uncle, Jacob's uncle, finally offers to pay Jacob. He's been working for him for 14 years, and he says, well, I don't want you to leave. I've quite enjoyed the increase in wealth that you have brought to the household. But Jacob refuses Laban's wage since he's learned the hard way that Laban never actually pays. Instead, Jacob will take his chances with the normal course of breeding the sheep and the goats. Jacob proposes that he will take all of the weird animals from Laban's flock, the striped ones, the spotted ones, the speckled ones. Laban, whose name is actually the Hebrew word for the color white, gets to keep the white ones, fair enough. They're the ones that are marked for him. But then in verse 35, Laban promptly and secretly removes all the striped and speckled and spotted animals from his flocks, leaving Jacob with the few that he already had in the flock that he was responsible for. Crafty, crafty Laban thinks that he's got Jacob right where he wants him. He'll never be able to build wealth on a speckled flock. There's not enough animals to breed. He'll never be able to leave. Ah, but now Jacob, the master trickster, goes to work. And if you found those verses, 37 to 42, where it talks about what Jacob was doing with those branches, if you found that confusing, that's the whole point. Jacob got you too. There's some narrative sleight of hand happening there. The original language is notoriously tricky. It's been unclear forever exactly what Jacob was doing with those sticks that caused his lambs and kids to be born spotted and speckled and strong and Laban's to be born weak and feeble. My favorite theory, and I didn't come up with this, some biblical scholar did, but he you know, examined all the words and everything, and he basically says that he thinks that Jacob actually built sheep mannequins to trick Laban's sheep into wasting their energy uh, during breeding season. I think that seems most fitting, given what, given what we know about Jacob and his preference for theatrical dress-up, but we really just don't know what exactly he was up to with those things. And these creatures are actually called Jacob's sheep. They're a British variety of, uh, of sheep, and you can see why they're called Jacob's sheep. Jacob's trick itself doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter what exactly he did. The, the thing that matters is the result of it. As we read in verse 43, Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, and male servants, and camels, and donkeys. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's 
and from what was our father's he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Laban realizes that he's been had. And soon after, Yahweh tells Jacob it's a good time to get out of Dodge in 31 verse 3. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your kindred, and I will be with you. I've been meditating on this story for the better part of 10 years. I remember when I first read, I think it was probably the first time I read through the Bible in its entirety, and I came upon this, and I thought to myself, why did they keep this story? <laughs> why is this in here? And this story was key in the Lord beginning to teach me to seek him, to seek the good news, especially in those parts of the Bible that are confusing, off-putting, or deeply weird, which happens to be most of it. Meditating on this passage taught me that the whole word of God is for the whole people of God. It's not confusing because God wants to confuse us. It's confusing because there's something happening there that doesn't quite jive with our culture or our social expectations, and it's an invitation to push deeper. And this story of Jacob and his crafty carpentry keys us into the larger themes of deceit and trickery that run throughout all of Genesis. The whole story kicks off when a spiritual being pretended to be a serpent and tricked Adam and Eve into taking the forbidden fruit. And we see it throughout the Jacob stories. He extorts the birthright from Esau. Then he and his mother Rebekah trick Isaac into giving him Esau's blessing. Laban then tricks him into marrying Leah first and gets twice the work out of him. Laban, or Rachel lies about stealing her father's household gods. Later on, Jacob himself will be duped by his own sons about Joseph's death. Joseph will be, be imprisoned because of Mrs. Potiphar's lies, and then Joseph tricks his brothers several times over the course of saving them from starvation. Around and around and around it goes. Lies after deceit after tricks after lies after deceit after tricks. It should sound familiar. Well, why were Jacob and Laban playing this dangerous game? To get what they wanted and to keep what they had. And we're no different. We lie to ourselves constantly. We lie to each other as well, especially in the church. I think that's somewhat surprising, since we're supposed to be big fans of the truth. But take stock of your heart. How often brother and sister asks you how it's going, and your response is a lie. It's good. The request goes around for anything we need to pray over and you have nothing to say. How are things going with your marriage? Things are good. And sometimes that is the truth. I'm not, you know, what I didn't just say was every time you don't have anything to pray for, I sit there and I go, they're lying. You know, sometimes I don't, you know, it is what it is. But I think that we often, when the opportunity comes to share, we don't. We either don't say anything, I think as a form of deceit, or we just outrightly lie. Why do we tell these lies, church? To keep a good reputation? I think there's things about us that we don't want other people to know, right? Because we're afraid that it'll change how they think of us. I think sometimes it's to please others. I think that's a pressure that, that Clayton and I feel often, that we're expected to be super people, and so we're not supposed to reflect the, you know, range of emotions and things that other people are supposed to. I think most of that is a critic that we've invented. I don't, you know, 
think that actually comes from any of you, but it's definitely there. We want to please others. I think we do it to delay reckoning with our own choices. If we don't have to acknowledge that something's going on, then we really don't have to deal with the fact that we caused it. But dishonest gain, the Bible tells us, is always a ticking time bomb. And it doesn't just mean with money. It includes things like reputation and relationship. And here's why. If we have secured our relationships or our reputation or our identity, on things that are ultimately lies, we have made ourselves enemies of the truth because the truth will ruin those things if it ever comes out, and it will. Jesus says that everything hidden will be disclosed and shouted from the rooftops. Truth is bedrock, lies are sand. When the storms hit, everything that is built on sand collapses. I think one of the devil's greatest tricks is to get us to keep our mouths shut before our brothers and sisters in Christ. We build little mannequins of ourselves and push those forward as the truth. Nothing to see here. This is a spotless little lamb. My fleece is white as snow. We feel that we must lie to get what we want or to keep what we have. But the Lord says otherwise. The good news is that Jacob bears Yahweh's promise no matter what he actually does. Jacob schemed to get what he wanted, how he wanted it, and it would all belong to him. He found a loophole, a way to live without any reliance on Yahweh. Jacob chose animals that would be unfit for sacrifice. You cannot offer animals with spots or speckles or freckles on the altar. Now this is before Sinai, this is before the tabernacle and everything else, but a wise Hebrew reader would have that in their minds as they continue to meditate and read and, and shift back and forth over these stories. Only unblemished white sheep and goats were proper for the altar. But in Genesis chapter 31, and we didn't read this part just because I didn't want to have a, a, a super long reading, Jacob actually reveals to Rachel and Leah that he had had a dream. And he had been told that it was actually the creator himself who had caused those flocks to increase. Jacob's stunt with the sticks was irrelevant. It would have happened whether or not he did whatever he did. And likewise, our standing before God, our membership in God's people, does not depend on maintaining the facade that we present to one another. And thank God, because one day, it always comes down. I'm not very old. I mean, I feel kind of old, but <clears throat> I'm not that old, but I am old enough to know that at some point, you're found out. We're all found out. As Jacob quickly figured out, we cannot hide from or trick the Creator God. We can be, we must be honest with ourselves and one another about what we face. The power of sin begins, and it's not necessarily immediate, but it begins to evaporate like fog as we walk in the light, as he is in the light, as we walk in the truth. 
And I think sometimes we're afraid that if, you know, if people really knew whatever is happening or if I had to face what I was, ha I wouldn't feel worthy anymore. How could God use somebody like me, right? If people knew what I had done, would they let me up here with a microphone? Would they let me, whatever, fill in the blank, serve the church in different ways? Would they even let me still come if they knew the things that I've done or the things that I'm facing? The greatest trick of them all is that God uses the weak and broken things of this world to shame the strong. When Jesus came, he did not come. Well, he did, but they didn't receive him. When Jesus came, the people who had it all together would not listen to him and were partly responsible for his death. It was the prostitutes, the tax collectors, those possessed by demons. They were the ones who first turned to Jesus because they knew that they were sick. In the end, Jacob had no one left to grapple with but God himself. The two struggled all night. Jacob thought he'd gained the upper hand. He was sorely mistaken. He limped away from that encounter, a changed man with a significant injury. There'd be no hiding it. If you read in the, the story, the famous story of Jacob wrestling with the angel or wrestling with Yahweh himself, right? And his hip gets pulled out of socket. You don't, you know, he's not going to ever walk normally again after that. There would be no more dress up. He could not pass for Esau anymore. There would be no crafty carpentry to get him out of his sticky spots. He could no longer live on lies, but had to live in faith in Yahweh's promise. And I think one of the deepest lessons of these stories is that God often shows himself in ways that we do not expect, and that he sees through all of our tricks and deceit. And this brings us back to the Lord Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Sin, death, their spiritual and human henchmen thought that they had Jesus right where they wanted him. How carefully the religious leaders had been scheming for weeks. How secretly Judas had made his wicked arrangements to betray him. They had stayed up late into the night concocting these brain-twisting questions to trap Jesus in blasphemy so they could arrest him. But over and again, throughout this holy week, Jesus waltzed right through their brain teasers and all of their traps until the exact moment that he was ready to die. Jesus became what's known as the righteous trickster, the polar opposite of what Jacob and Laban were doing in their selfish deceit. And he had learned this role of the righteous trickster from many of his great-grandmothers in the faith. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Esther, a wily woman named Yahweh as God in the book of Judges who lures an enemy general into her tent, gives him warm milk, soothes him to sleep, and then to end the war, nails him through the head with a tent peg. Each of these women took a desperate situation and with some costume changes and sleight of hand, won deliverance for God's people. Jacob did not steal a single one of Laban's sheep, and yet, he robbed him blind. His flocks increased, Laban shrank. Jesus never lied. He was never deceitful. But he most certainly used his cleverness and imagination to turn the tables on his enemies. St. Augustine likened Jesus' death to a fishing trip. Christ is the worm. The cross was the hook. But the real victim was the fish. 
The enemy thought that he had triumphed when Jesus breathed his last. But the whole thing was a setup. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28 tell us that despite the scheming of God's enemies, all they did was exactly what the Father had decided beforehand was going to happen. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says, For our sake God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Did you catch that little switch? It went pretty fast. Jesus became speckled, spotted, blemished, and damaged so that we would be pure and holy and righteous. Hebrews 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus also shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery to the fear of death. Jesus became something that he was not before, tricking the powers of evil into killing him and breaking their own power, freeing us from their tyranny. This is the good news. He did it. With some costume changes and sleight of hand, Jesus won deliverance for his people. Therefore, church, let us walk in the truth. Let us steep our minds and hearts in the truth of God's word so that we may hear the truth when it is spoken by others and discern falsehood. Let us be honest with ourselves about our failings and about our gifts. Let us admit defeat, need, weakness to one another and find help in this fellowship of believers. This is what we're here for. Let me take a drink because I want to clear my throat to say this. It boggles my mind and I know it's hard Like I said, it's hard for me, too, sometimes to admit things. And I'm not saying we all have to get up in front of the whole church and trumpet our dirty laundry. That would be not, that would not be a good time. (laughs) But finding trusted Christians in our fellowship to let know what's going on is vital, is vital to our life and our, our following with Jesus. We know that you all have got stuff going on. Of course you do. You're a living human. We don't need to hide from one another. Jesus has saved us from damnation, ultimately, and from the judgment of God, but even now, he saved us from the need to lie, to trick, to deceive one another. Let us tell each other what is going on and find help in this body of believers. Let's tell the world the truth the good news about what God has done in Jesus in his death and rising again. Jesus tricked the powers of evil into giving away the farm so that we can live in truth and freedom. None of this was obvious the day that Jesus died. It looked for all the world that human and demonic evil had crushed another innocent person like they do over and over and over again. His followers went into hiding. Governor Pilate, High Priest Caiaphas, and King Herod all sat back and congratulated each other on ridding themselves of a pest. Jesus' broken, bloody body was wrapped in cloth, laid in a tomb by his friends. But all was not as it seemed. The creator had something up his sleeve. In three days' time, that tomb would crack back open, and a pair of angels would escort someone back out into the morning sunlight. Jesus! Jesus! very much alive, 
very much ready to turn the world upside down. But we'll get to that next week. <laughs>